Well, good morning again. If you have a Bible, open it to Psalm 40. We're going to continue our series in the Psalms in Psalm 40 today, which can be found in the Black Bibles under the chairs on page 468. So Psalm 40, uh, page 468 in the Black Bibles there. This series uh, we've called Collide through the Psalms as we've talked about just the concept of bringing our emotions to bear on the truth of God's Word, speaking back to God what He tells us about Himself, uh, speaking to Him real uh, real emotions, real struggles, the real drama that's going on in our own life. And we've been learning week by week what that means to have a healthy spiritual life, how to walk in dependence on God. What does that look like? We have a great example in Psalm chapter 40, and this week we're calling it Collide with Telling. Psalm chapter 40 is about singing and telling about what God has done. And as we work through the text, what I want you to see is that David, as the king of Israel and as the worship leader of Israel is going to talk about telling of what God's accomplished in terms of singing, in terms of the corporate worship of God's people. But there are a lot of different ways that we can tell, right? Uh, And so what I want us to listen and hear from the text is that David's saying, I'm not going to shut my mouth about what God has done for me, but I'm going to speak up. I'm going to speak up. Now, for him, the primary way he does that is singing. He's a singer. Uh, a lot of you aren't singers. Not, not that I've like, heard you and judged you or anything, but I just know, statistically, right, a lot of you aren't singers. So this is about telling. It's about telling. Singing is a, a great way we do that. It's about telling of God's greatness and what he's done in our life. So uh, follow along with me. We'll read Psalm 40. I'm going to kind of read the beginning and then the end, and then we'll look more in detail at some of the other verses this morning. Psalm 40 says, it's to the choir master. It's just, this is to be sung. It's a psalm of David. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You've multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. We're going to skip down to verse 11. He says, As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They're more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you Rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. We'll stop there. We'll look at more of the text in detail, but let me me pray for us. God, we uh, proclaim along with the psalmist that you are great. We ask that you would speak to us this morning. God, in the psalm, it talks about having an open ear and being listeners. And so I pray, God, that we would be able to listen, that you would help us to hear what you're saying and that you would open our minds and our hearts to who you are, and to the reality of what you have to say in this world. We thank you for your love that you showed to us in Jesus. We come to you in trust. 
expecting you to change us, to make us more like him. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to give you a little bit of background on my own uh, personal kind of religious history, church history, uh, to help you to understand where I come from when I read this text. Um, I grew up, uh, my family went to a church when I was very little. So first four, four years of my life, we went to a church. It was an Episcopal church. And the depth of my understanding of, of Episcopal theology was that they had these really cool kneelers under the pews. Have y'all ever seen those before? Those are awesome, especially if you're three. They are great fun to jump on. And so it's like this little bench that folds down and it has a pad on it so you can kneel and pray on it in the service without you know, being on the hard concrete floor or whatever. So as a three-year-old, I loved it. I loved going to church, and I would just be like, bang, 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 right? And I would just kind of slam those back and forth. So, so that was church for me. That was my religious instruction in the early years. And uh, we stopped going when I was about four because my parents got divorced. And then my brother and sister went to some other church, some youth group with friends. But my mom was kind of sick and struggling, and so she didn't always go. And I was given the choice. And so, you know, five years old, six years old, seven years old, do you want to go to church or do you want to stay home and watch TV? I was like all about the TV, right? So my religious instruction then from age 5 to 11 was singing cowboys on Sunday morning TV uh, in the 70s and 80s. So that's, that was my church for a while and uh, enjoyed the singing cowboys, sometimes would watch other cartoons as well. Um, and around the age of 11 or 12, my mom decided to start taking us back to church. And we went to one of these weird churches where they teach the Bible and talk about Jesus all the time, right? Um, and so I can remember kind of being interested in what the pastor had to say sometimes. You know, I would listen and he would talk about what the Bible meant. And that was, that was interesting to me. And I think God kind of worked on my heart over the years. But I can remember one particular night at an evening service where we were gathered, some kind of small group or some kind of like discussion group. You know, we'd broken out. And I'm, I'm like 14 or 15 years old. And we're talking about how if you're a Christian, you should tell other people about Jesus. And I was like, oh, no, 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 uh-uh, right? I mean, I am backing out of this whole deal, going that, I don't want to be one of those people, right? That's just weird. And it really bothered me. Because I can, at that same age, I, I would go see my dad for the summers in Washington, D.C. Uh, I'd take the train downtown, go take art classes at a museum, sit out in the park and eat my lunch, and there was all these weird religious people that would walk up to me in the park trying to tell me about their religion. I didn't want to be one of those weird people telling everybody else about their religion, right? Have any of y'all ever felt that way? Am I the only bad person that felt that way about religion? Okay. This is the way I felt about religion, and then in God's great sense of humor, I find myself now standing in front of a large group of people telling them about Jesus. Uh, So, let that be a warning to you. If you don't want to tell people about Jesus, God may have a great sense of humor in your life as well. Um, but, but what I want to appeal to you this morning is that our hearts can be changed about that. God has changed my heart about it. Hopefully, I'm not one of those people that walked up to me in the park, right, and I thought were really bizarre and weird. I'm sure sometimes people think I am one of those people. But what we're going to see in the text this morning in Psalm chapter 40 is how God changed David into someone that wanted to tell about who he is. And what I want to appeal to you this morning is that don't try to tell people about God just because you're supposed to tell people about God. What we see in Psalm 40 is David telling people about God because he wanted to. He wanted to. God had done something in his life 
that made David want to tell people about God. And I think that's the, a big lesson we learn here. And so the first thing that we see in the text is that telling is very personal for David as he writes this psalm. This is a very personal reality. God did something to David. He had invaded his life. The psalmist's life was turned upside down and he couldn't help but tell people about what God had done. So look at the first verse here. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. First clue we have here in the text is when you see in the Old Testament the capital L-O-R-D, the all caps LORD, there's a slight distinction there, slight variation. You know, there's like a generic word for God that can be used, which is like a catch-all term that people from other religions would have used as well. And then there's the very specific personal name of God, how he revealed himself to Moses as what we sometimes pronounce as Yahweh or Jehovah. You may have heard those terms before. Uh, there's, con- there's disagreement about how to pronounce it because the Jews thought the name was so holy they wouldn't even say it out loud. You know, so now thousands of years later, we're not even exactly sure how to pronounce it. But it translates roughly to something like I am. When God appeared to Moses, he said, tell Pharaoh the great I am has sent you. And that was his personal covenant name, Yahweh, which in our English translations is usually these all capital letters, L-O-R-D, the great personal Lord, this covenant Lord that makes a relationship with his people. And so David's appealing to this personal covenant Lord and crying out to him. He's desperate and he's crying out to him and he says in verse 2, he drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. What do you think he's talking about here? Do you think he's talking about an actual bog or a metaphorical bog? What do you, what do you think? Uh, actual? Metaphorical? Okay, we have, we have votes on both sides this morning, okay? I have a picture here of an actual bog. Here's a guy stuck in quicksand. Any of you ever been stuck in quicksand before? Just to help you out, I googled what to do if you do get stuck in quicksand, okay? <laughs> Apparently, you're supposed to lean back so you have a more equal distribution of weight and then backstroke out of it, okay? That's, that's how you get out of quicksand. <laughs> do not panic. That's what I read. That's the most important thing. If I, you know, one of the movies I would watch when I wasn't going to church as a kid Along with the Singing Cowboys, I would watch old Tarzan movies. People always were getting stuck in quicksand in Tarzan movies. So I grew up with a great fear of quicksand, but now I know how to get out of it, okay? There is a way to get out, but David apparently called to the Lord for help when he was stuck in the miry bog, when he was stuck in the the clay, the muck, the pit. Um, I, I would say it's not all that important whether it was uh, literal physical mud David was stuck in or whether it was uh, metaphorical, because he's clearly using it metaphorically, right? David's blowing it up for the people of God. He's saying, he's now turning this into the choir master, right? The first verse, it says, David wrote this for us to sing when we gather and worship God. So this is to have meaning for all of us. So maybe David really was stuck in a pit in one of those battles, one of those times he was being chased and someone was trying to kill him. He was stuck in a real bog and he called out and God, God rescued him somehow. Maybe it was physical, Maybe he's just talking about being sick. Maybe he's just talking about uh, depression. Maybe he's talking about something else. But he's clearly writing it in a way that we can relate to. And we can say, you know what, I've, I've been stuck too. I've been in a bad place too. And he uses this very specific word, the pit of destruction. Do you see that in verse 2? 
He drew me up out of the pit of destruction, which is a word that's kind of a, it's kind of a word that's used a lot of times in the Old Testament in conjunction with this term of Sheol. Have you all heard that word, Sheol? We've talked about that. It's this Old Testament word for the grave, basically. Sometimes we think of it as hell, but a lot of times we just think of it as death, the grave. And so David's also making the connection with uh, the ultimate pit, the pit of all pits, right? Like you may be stuck in this pit of you're in a dead-end job, or you may be in this relationship where you're up against uh, betrayal, right? You've been hurt by someone. You're uh, struggling in your marriage, or something's going wrong with your kids, or you may be up against the pit of, of cancer. And, and David wrote this the way he did so that you can relate and say, I've, I've been in a pit too. I've been in a bad place. I've been up against something that I can't get myself out of. And David's trying to show us that even up against the ultimate pit, the great pit of death itself, God is the answer to get out of that. That's picked up in the New Testament. Very clearly, we're told that Jesus conquered the final enemy, death. The final enemy was death, and Jesus won the battle over death through his death and resurrection. So he promises us victory over the pit of destruction, over hell itself, over the grave, over the meaningless of dying and and not being able to continue in life and having a worthless life. Jesus bought us out of that pit. Jesus redeemed us out of that pit by, by dying for our sins and by giving us his perfect righteousness. And so David writes this purposefully in a way so that we can relate to it. So even if we've never been in quicksand or we've never been stuck in a mud pit, we have been stuck And the New Testament and the Old Testament again and again says to have a relationship with God, you have to recognize just how stuck you really are. Jesus said, I didn't come for the healthy, I came for the sick. And so if you've never felt stuck, especially if you've never felt stuck in your relationship with God, chances are you don't have a a realistic understanding of, of where you stand in life. Scriptures say for us to really understand who God is, for us to really have a relationship with him, We have to recognize that we're stuck. We have to recognize that we're sinners, that we can't save ourselves, that we can't fix the problem that we're in, that we can't rescue ourselves, but we need someone from the outside to come in and rescue us. And that's what he's communicating here. God rescued him. God saved him. And then he says, then the reaction to that very personal experience of being saved, the reaction is verse four, no, verse three. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. He sings. He tells. There's this song we sing sometimes where it says, my heart will sing no other name but Jesus. And whenever we sing that, I'm reminded, you know what, Jesus, let that be true of me because it's not always true. Sometimes I'm singing, I need more money in my bank account instead of singing Jesus. Right? Sometimes I'm singing, uh, I need better relationships. I need things to go well for me at work. I want my agenda to be accomplished. I want my day to go the way I want my day to go. I want everybody to uh, respond to me the way they should respond to me. I want to be healthy. I don't want to be sick anymore. And that, that's sometimes what we're singing instead of singing Jesus. Jesus is my only hope. And what he's telling us here is that he's singing a new song to God. God is his hope. The Lord is his hope. This personal God is the one he's going to tell people about. He goes on in verse 4, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. We're happy if we trust in him rather than trusting in ourselves or these other gods. Who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. 
that phrase, uh, going astray after a lie, can also be translated false gods. Some of you that have different Bible translations might, might see that. Sometimes it says false gods because uh, that's a vague term in the Hebrew in the Old Testament that can be translated as, as like a false hope or an untrue reality that's not really reality, right? We often try to live these lies. We often try to tell, us, uh, tell ourselves these false stories of this will save me. If I just do this next thing, that will save me. And he's saying, don't, don't trust in those lies, those other gods. Trust in the real God who gave himself for you. The only God, the only story where God gives himself for you instead of you giving yourself to work your way to heaven. In our story, God worked his way to us and came after us in the form of Jesus. So he says, don't go after these lies. Trust in him. Verse 5, he says, You've multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them. Yet they are more than can be told. I think this is a beautiful framing of telling your personal story. I think here David's modeling for us that we should tell the personal story of how God has saved us out of the pit. Out of whatever little pits we get stuck in in life, right? And also, also out of the ultimate pit of hell itself. The, the ultimate pit of separation from God. The, the salvation that we have in Jesus. We should tell that personal story. We should sing that new song and tell others as David talks about. But he says, yet they are more than can be told. And so we have this framing of, yes, we should tell it. We should proclaim it. Yet it's more than, more than we could ever describe. What he's done for us is undescribable. It's beyond us. So I think that gives us a little relief to say, well, if God has saved me, I should say something about it. I should tell personally what God has done. But I have a little relief here of, there's no way I can do it justice. There's no way I can really do it right. There's always more to say. There's always more to say. And I stand up here week after week, and I get to study, and I get to you know, focus and take time and really craft what I'm going to say. But I always wish I'd said it better. I always wish I'd done more. And I just want to tell you that if you don't have the gift of telling, right? If you don't feel comfortable telling people about what God has done in your life, just know that that's okay because you'll never be able to do it justice anyway. Tim Keller is one of my favorite pastors. And I remember one of the the times he was talking about telling your story to other people and convincing people that Jesus is, is real and he's our hope. And he says, the best way to get good at telling people is lots of experiences of telling people really badly. That, that's the best way to get there. So here, this great guy that's a mentor to me who I think is brilliant, and he's like, yeah, saying it badly lots of times is the best way to say it well. And so I want to encourage you with that. God's calling us to tell a story. What, what has he done for you? What, what has God done for you? Some of you are here this morning, and you're like, I can't relate to this personal connection with God. I don't know that I really see that. I don't know that I see personally God intervening in my life, and that's, that's great. You're welcome here. You don't don't make up some fake story so you can fit in with us. You're, you're our friend. We welcome you. Tell the story of whatever you know. We, we want to know your real story. Tell it. I would encourage you if, you, if you do know the salvation that God offers to us in Jesus, and you want to get better at telling that story, another way to think about it, on top of just telling it badly, is telling it to friends, right? Tell it to your kids. Tell it to your spouse. Tell it to your friends. Tell the story of what you know. Don't, don't be intimidated by, well, I'm not sure how I'm supposed to tell it or what I'm supposed to say or I haven't really studied theology or I don't know the right words. Just, just say your story, whatever your story is. Tell your story. Be in the habit of telling that story. And the more God invades your life, the more story you're going to have to tell. 
I want to challenge us to become that kind of people, a people that are engaged in personal telling of, of what God's done in our life. And my prayer is that we would be the kind of people that Jesus talks about that, that recognize that we're sick and, and we need that doctor to, to save us, to help us, recognizing the pit that we're in, recognizing the struggle that we have. So we begin telling the story about what he's done to save us. One of the great phrases I love in this, in this uh, text here is he put a new song in my mouth. Uh, the, the band uh, U2 does this song, Psalm 40, one of my favorite songs. It's actually one of the only songs I can play in guitar because it's only two chords. That's kind of nice. Um, but they, they sing the song, he put a new song in my mouth, and then they contrast that with how long to sing this song. So they kind of show uh, the contrast between the, this new song of look at what God's done and oh, how long, God, how long? You know, it's this mixing lament and praise, which the Psalms often do. They often mix those two things together. And that's part of what we do in corporate worship. We gather together, we sing new songs, we sing old songs. We sing songs of celebration, we song, sing songs of sadness. I want to challenge you that one of our uh, jobs as God's people is also to corporately tell of what God has done. We, we are to sing new songs. We are to organize. We are to come together and gather in big gatherings. So the next section I've calling this corporate telling. I used purposely the word corporate because I think a lot of times in churches today, we think of that as kind of become a bad word, right? It's almost like a dirty business word in our language or in our culture, right? Have you ever heard it use that word, like corporate? I have a, I have a picture here of a boardroom. Sometimes people think of corporate like big business and corporations and organization is bad. And there's this cultural pull we have in the 21st century church to talk about religion is only good if it's authentic and disorganized, right? Have you all ever heard that kind of talk? Um, Because once it becomes organized, then that's when it becomes evil, as if organization is the great evil. Now, I'm tempted to go in with that myself because I'm a very disorganized person, right? So that sounds real nice. But when I read the Bible, the problem is the Bible says we should organize, right? The, The Bible says we should form a corporation. We should uh, elect leaders. We call them elders and deacons, right? First Timothy, Second Timothy, Titus are very clear that there should be an organization to this organic, ooey-gooey thing that God's doing in the world, right? It is organic. We are spirit-led. It is something God's doing in us as individuals, but we should corporately gather. We should proclaim what he's done. We should organize and have leaders. And in those pastoral epistles, First Timothy, Second Timothy, Titus, it's, it's very clear that our Leaders should be committed to right doctrine and not wrong doctrine. And then it matters what is taught and that they should be ethical and not unethical, right? There, there's clear parameters that are given to us about how to organize and how to be a corporate body. And David reflects this here in this next section. Uh, I describe it as corporate telling. You'll see what is kind of a bookend in verse 9 and verse 10. You'll see him talking about the great congregation, Right? So we call that a bookend, or sometimes it's called an inclusio, where it means this is a big idea, and he brings it up at the beginning of this several clauses, and he brings it up at the end of several clauses, so we know it's a big idea. Here, he's talking about the great congregation, the great gathering of God's people. He was the king and the worship leader of Israel, of God's people in the Old Testament. So he was gathering people together and trying to lead them on mission to be what God had called them to be. And then he pairs that section with the previous section of verses 6 through 8, where he talks about being authentic. So see, David, and I think the scripture, always merges these two ideas of corporate organization and authentic spirit-led 
life of obedience. Those two things should go together. They should be married, right? So let's look at verse 6 through 8 where he talks about being authentic. He says in verse 6, In sacrifice and offering you've not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. An open ear. This is translated into the the Greek version of the Bible. It's called the Septuagint. It's translated as a a body you've prepared for me. Um, Here, some translations talk about you've dug out my ears, right? Or you've pierced my ears. It's kind of a weird thing in in the Hebrew language. It's kind of hard to understand. And basically, when you look at all the different ways that people translate it and the different things that it could mean, uh, what we get is this connotation of uh, we can either be ready and responsive, right? Like a, like a body that's ready and prepared is how it's translated into the Greek, and then that's picked up in the New Testament letter of Hebrews in Hebrews 10. Or in this Hebrew wording here of you've dug out my ears or you've opened my ears, right? Like our ears were stopped up. We were saying, no, God, I'm not going to listen to you. And it's saying he's dug out our ears so that we have ears to hear, so that we're responsive to him. Okay, so that's, that's what it's talking about there, with an open ear. And then he says, burnt offering and sin offering you've not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it's written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. What he's testifying to here is his role as being the kind of person that we should be. And we understand this to be fully fulfilled in Jesus himself. In theology, this is called typology, which means in the Old Testament, there were leaders that stood up and did what God asked them to do, and they were types or patterns of Christ, who was really the, the full form of what we were looking for. So if all these leaders in the Old Testament give us hints that God's going to send a champion to save us, and then Jesus is the actual champion. He's the one that actually gets it done. So that's picked up in the New Testament letters of, of Hebrews, and it's, it's told that this is about Jesus, right? At some level, David lived this out as the leader of Israel. But we all know that David failed and sinned, right? He didn't completely do what God told him to do. He didn't completely present himself. He didn't completely listen to God, but he was a sinner like you and me. So in his corporate job as the leader of the organization, he sought to be authentic. He sought, thought to be, sought to be faithful. He, he sought to, to be responsive to God instead of being someone like the previous king, King Saul, who would say, I don't want to do what God told me to do, so I'm going to do the opposite of what God commands, and then I'm going to offer sacrifices to make it okay. Do you all remember that story in the Old Testament? King Saul did that. He was the king before David, and it was said of him that he looked like a king because he was tall and handsome, but David was the real king because David had a heart that would listen to God. So there's that contrast that David's talking about. It's not that David is saying that sacrifices and offerings are are all bad. He's just setting up that contrast of going through the motions versus actually listening to God. So I want to challenge you this morning, if you're like King Saul, and you say, I really don't care what God wants me to do. I'm going to do my own thing but then I'll pray some kind of magic incantation prayer to make it all okay. I'll say, well, God will forgive me now, right? That's pretty popular today in Christianity, living that kind of life. I'll just do the sacrifice, and then it's all all okay, right? I'll I'll pray the little prayer. I'll say the magic words, and God has to forgive me. Well, well, what I would say is if, if you don't actually want to do what God wants, if you don't care what God says, then you really don't have a relationship with him. And I would just appeal to you, plead with you that you're in a very dangerous place. That's not really knowing God. Saying, I don't care what you say, God. I'm not listening to you. And then I'll pray my magic prayer. That, that was how Saul lived his life. He, he disobeyed God. He didn't listen to God. And then he was like, well, I did the sacrifices. What's wrong with that, right? Like, I, I paid him off. I paid him off. He should be fine. 
And David's saying, okay, that's not the kind of king I'm going to be. I'm going to be the kind of king that has a heart that's soft, that tries to listen to what God has to say. And like I said, David didn't do it perfectly, but Jesus did. And that's what Hebrews, the, the New Testament letter of Hebrews, towards the end of the New Testament, makes it very clear in Hebrews chapter 10 that Jesus is really the only one that really did it. He's the only one that really ultimately listened and obeyed. And so when we talk about trusting in Jesus, we're not just talking about trusting in his death, taking our sins, that's important, but we're also talking about his perfect obedience being the kind of obedience we should have offered. And so Jesus offers us both like a positive and negative substitution. Negatively, he takes away our sins. Positively, he gives us his righteousness so that Jesus is the one that fulfilled this perfectly. He listened. He paid attention. He did what God wanted. He offered. It it goes on and it says, In verse 8, I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. That is the wording of the new covenant. That's picked up in the New Testament letter of Hebrews uh, 8 as well as Hebrews 10. It's also picked up in Jeremiah 31. But it's this idea of a new covenant where instead of the law being out there, right, this is God's commandments of me, I'll try to do them. The law becomes in our heart. It becomes something we want to do because our heart has been changed because we see how much God loves us, that he's offered himself to us in Jesus. And that's what changes us. That's what makes us someone that wants to listen, have our ears dug out so we can hear what he has to say. We have a corporate job to do here. He says in verse 9, I've told the glad news. I've told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I've not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, I've not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I've spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I've not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. So he's merging these two worlds. He's saying, as a leader, I should be that kind of authentic person that actually listens, that actually wants to do what God wants. And then we've got this corporate organization, and we're going to be about telling that story. And that's what we're trying to do here as a church. We're trying to say, yeah, we want to be organized. We want to pay our bills. You know, we just celebrated a day. We paid off our building. That's awesome. That's exciting. But if we're not about an authentic relationship with God of listening to what he has to say to us and being changed day by day, then paying off the building really doesn't matter. All the corporate organizational stuff doesn't matter unless we're about what he's told us to be about corporately, which is telling the news of his deliverance, telling the news of his salvation, that our hope is in him. He's our only hope in life and in death, is what the Heidelberg Catechism says. Jesus is our only hope. He's our only hope. He's my only hope when I wake up in the morning. He's my only hope when I hit the grave. Jesus is my only hope. We want to corporately be about him and about that story, declaring that he's the one that fulfills this better than anyone else. The last thing that we see in this psalm is desperate telling. So they're going to tell the song corporately. They're going to tell it personally. David's saying, God actually saved me. I'm going to tell that song. I'm going to sing that new song. We're going to be a people that sing new songs and sing old songs, but it's going to be a personal story of what God's done for us. And corporately, we're going to gather and be about that as an organization. And then he says, also, even in the worst moments, I'm going to be about this story, right? Because there's times that you feel like David did in the first section, I can really tell what God has done, and I'm pretty excited about it. And there's times as an organization that we say corporately, we're going to tell what he's done, and we're excited to tell that story. And then there's times when we fall back into the pit and through our tears, he asks us to still be about that story. Even when we feel like things aren't working out. Look at verse 11. 
He says, as for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I'm poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. He's talking about a place where his sins, his iniquities have overtaken him. He says, I cannot see. They're more than the hairs of my head. I'm, I'm overwhelmed. I'm overtaken. He says, even in those moments, we're, we're to still be about telling the story of who he is. Even when we feel like none of this is making sense. But we remember like David, I remember you saved me before. Why am I here now? Why, why did I fall back into this hole again, God? Like, what is going on? What is happening? And many of you find yourself in that place now, right? You, you find yourself in that place of facing something that you never thought you'd face. And David challenges us to continue to be about the story. It's our only hope. He's, he's the only one that we can trust in. He says, let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. There, there's always going to be people that are going to try to make it worse than it already is. And there will always be days when we don't think we can see straight enough to declare God's praises. We don't feel like we can do it. We don't feel like we can proclaim who he is any longer. And David gives us the example here of saying, as for me, verse 17, I'm poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. I want to challenge you that, that even when you can't see up from down you you can't see through your tears when everything has fallen apart he's still our only hope he's still the one to tell about he's still the one to put our hope in and that's what david models here as for me i'm poor and needy you may feel poor and needy you may feel absolutely broken but he's still the only one that offers salvation in this world and my prayer is that we would be a people that then are able to sing a new song of hope in him. We talk about this, you know, literally. We, we like to translate uh, our experience of God in, into new words and new language, right? We write new songs. We play new songs. We also play old songs from 500 years ago of people that have done the same thing. There's an African scholar named Laman Sane that says the original language of Christianity is translation. My prayer for you is that you would hear the message yourself, that God would dig out our ears so we, should, we could hear what he's telling us. As Zephaniah 3.17 says, he's this daddy that loves us. It's mighty to save and delights in us and sings over us as he rescues us and adopts us into his family. As we hear that song, my prayer is that then we'll be able to sing that song to others. We'll be able to tell of his mighty works. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you for your salvation that you offer us in Jesus. We pray that you would help us sing to you, not just uh, literally in music, but figuratively in every day of our life, that our life would reflect 
the hope, the song of our heart that is you, the God of our salvation. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.